Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every episode of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. This week we continue our journey with the fifth Doctor and his tireless crew from Four to Doomsday. As usual, we'll be discussing the Doctor, companions and villains, and giving our thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story, so in order to join in the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or sorry, X as it's now called, or you can email us at timetravellingteam at teamproductions.com. But I suppose, as always, I will lead us off with the story recap. Please do, thank you. You're welcome. Part 1. The TARDIS lands on a large star cruiser as it makes its way through space. Inside the time machine, Adric announces that they have landed and the Doctor happily tells Tegan that they have landed back in Heathrow, where she can be on time for her first day as a flight attendant. However, they are all shocked when the Doctor uses the external view screen and they see they are in the control room of the Star Cruiser. Adric says that he put in the correct coordinates, but the Doctor says that there must have been some magnetic interference that pulled the TARDIS off course. He dons a breathing helmet and tells the others to wait inside whilst he goes to take a look around. As he explores the control room and fiddles with some pieces of equipment, he is unaware that he is being followed by a floating black orb that transmits his activity to a group of unseen figures. Inside the TARDIS, a frustrated Tegan asks for a second helmet to go outside and see what is keeping the Doctor. Adric says that they all know how distracted he can get, but assures her that since the TARDIS is a time machine, it doesn't matter how long they take to drop her back to Heathrow. Tegan asks what she should do, and Adric nonchalantly says that she should read. Tegan rejects the idea, and Adric expresses some chauvinistic thoughts on women and their intelligence, which angers both Tegan and Nyssa. Adric then questions the use of a large piece of equipment in the centre of the control room, and Nyssa sarcastically says that she thought that he knew everything. She informs him that it is a matter reducer, and then warns him that the Doctor might be in danger. Outside, the Doctor spots the drone observing him, and gives it a warm smile before he treats back inside the TARDIS. Doctor informs the others that everything is safe and tells Adric to get extra helmets so they can go and explore the ship. He tells Nissa that there is a lot of interesting technology on the ship that they can both look at. He warns them about the drone and tells them to follow his lead. He then gives a spare key to Tegan, who reluctantly takes it due to being frustrated at her potential firing. Outside, the Doctor shows the others the equipment and he and Nissa explain what everything does. Nissa recognises a piece of inoperative equipment as being reminiscent of something that was used on Traken, and the Doctor tells her to see if she can get it working again. He then addresses the drone, telling it that he means no harm. He requests to speak with whoever is in charge, and Tegan notices a door opening. The Doctor and Tegan make their way towards it, and the Doctor tells Adric to stay with Nissa, which he reluctantly does so. Adric angrily tells the drone to leave them alone, and Nissa tells him to calm down and help her with her tinkering. In the other control room, the mysterious figures comment on the fact that the scans show the TARDIS having originated on Earth, and they dare mistake the Doctor and the others as Earthlings. They show amazement at the intelligence they display, and one of them worries if their technical aptitude exceeds their own. Just then, the Doctor and Tegan arrive in the control room, and the mysterious figures are revealed to be a trio of robed, green-skinned aliens. The leader introduces himself as Monarch, and introduces his female counterpart as Enlightenment, and his male counterpart as Persuasion. The Doctor introduces himself and identifies himself and the others via their species origin. Monarch does the same, identifying his people as the Urbanka, which the Doctor comments is a long way away from where they currently are. Monarch changes the life support systems, allowing the Doctor and Tegan to remove their helmets, and he also summons refreshments while they talk. The Urbanka questioned them about current Earth trends and fashions, saying that they had not been to Earth for nearly two and a half thousand years. Back in the primary control room, Adric goes into the TARDIS to get some equipment. 
While he is gone, a man in Grecian-style clothing appears and confronts Nyssa. Adra calls out to her from inside the TARDIS, and when he gets no response, he goes outside to find her missing. He demands that the drone tell him where she is, and in response, a nearby door opens, and Adric goes through it. Back in the other room, Monarch asks how the Doctor arrived on board, and he explains how the magnetic interference being put out from the Urbanka ship interfered with the TARDIS's Artron energy field. Suddenly, Adric appears, and Monarch tests his knowledge of maths by asking him a theory of relativity. Adric tries to tell the Doctor about Nyssa, but he flashes him a warning stare, and Adric answers the Monarch's question. Tegan, who had been sketching out some current examples of the style being worn back in her own time, presents it to Enlightenment, and Monarch summons a drone to take the Doctor and the others to their refreshments. After they go, Monarch commends Enlightenment on her ruse, and says he will go take a closer look at the TARDIS. The Doctor and the others are brought to a room where they find Nyssa waiting for them, as well as another drone. Nyssa tells him about the man she met, but he suddenly appears himself, carrying a tray of refreshments. He says his name is Bygone, and that he comes from the Greek city-state of Athens. They all sit down to eat, and the Doctor asks Bygone how he got on the ship. However, they are interrupted by the arrival of an Australian Aborigine. He greets him in his native tongue, and Tegan responds in it, translating for the Doctor and the others. She says that the Aborigine's name is Kirkucci, who says that they are currently on a walkabout to the time of dreaming a metaphor for going to heaven. Just then, a Mesoamerican woman in regal attire enters, and Bygone introduces her as Princess Villagra, of the Mayan people, who has taken a vow of silence until she is reunited with them. Another man enters, a Mandarin Chinese, who greets them and introduces himself as Lin Futu. The Doctor asks how they all happen to be on the ship, but Bygone receives a secret command from Monarch, who has returned to his control room after failing to break into the TARDIS. Just then, a man and woman appear wearing clothes exactly like the ones Tegan sketched out earlier. They say that they will be arriving on Earth in four days and reveal that they are enlightenment and persuasion. Part 2. Adric asks how they changed their form, and enlightenment says that their technology is advanced enough to facilitate the change. Persuasion says that the reason they have changed is because the last time they visited Earth, the Earthlings were frightened of them because of their appearance. The Doctor expresses an interest in reading any history books of the Urbanka, and enlightenment says that she will help him. In his control room, Monarch observes the Doctor's wariness and orders his computer to retrieve any files on him, Gallifrey, or Artron Energy. The Doctor asks why the Urbanka are travelling to Earth, and Enlightenment Persuasion tell him that their home planet was destroyed a thousand years ago after their sun collapsed and formed a black hole. The Doctor and the others are amazed when they are told that the ship they are on is actually carrying the remaining three billion members of the Urbanka species. Enlightenment, on orders from Monarch, orders Bygone to take the travellers to their new accommodations, which Bygone says were his when he was brought on the ship over a hundred generations ago. Once they are alone, Tegan demands that they leave, but the Doctor says that there is more going on than meets the eye, and uses his hat to cover the floating monitor drone, before using a sonic pen to distort its audio so the Monarch can't hear them. In his control room, with the recently returned Enlightenment persuasion, Monarch expresses admiration for the Doctor's intelligence, and suggests he could be a useful ally. The others disagree, saying that his anarchic nature is opposed to their own ideals. Persuasion also highlights the change in Bygone's attitude since the Doctor and the others came on board, and Enlightenment agrees, saying that he is exhibiting something akin to tr- having a soul. Monarch rebukes her for her blasphemy and says that she is not to mention it again. Back in their quarters, the Doctor and the others are discussing how the ship could possibly hold three billion people. Tegan and Adric think it's impossible, but the Doctor and Nissa think that there is a scientific explanation to the situation. Nissa explains about her knowledge of cybernetics and points out the new versions of enlightenment and persuasion that resemble Tegan's sketch. 
The doctor then chimes in, saying that he has worked out the mat, and based on the presence of the four earthlings, the Urbanka have been to earth over four times over the last 12,000 years, and this time they are coming for good. He then suggests that they explore the ship to discover what the Urbanka want. He tells everyone to put on their helmets before they exit the room. Unbeknownst to them, this is anticipated by Monarch, who orders that a distraction be put in place to keep the Doctor occupied and that Nissa and Adric be separated from him so they can tell Monarch all they know about the Doctor. This works and the Doctor tells Tegan not to worry as they make their way through the ship, with Nissa and Adric going down a different route. The Doctor and Tegan enter a large gathering hall where they see representatives of the four different cultures watching as a group of Mayan women perform a dance. They are greeted by Persuasion, who invites them to sit down and watch the exchange of cultural traditions. The Doctor asks if there will be a demonstration from the Urbanka, but Persuasion replies that such primitive things are beneath them. In his control room, Monarch berates Bygone for his behaviour and orders him not to tell the Doctor anything of his mission until the time is right. Bygone points out that the Doctor would not aid Monarch in his mission to find something he calls the ultimate, as it does not exist. Monarch berates him for blasphemy and demands that he follow his instructions. Elsewhere, Nissa and Adric enter a garden lab tended by a group of Aborigines. Adric tries to communicate with them, but they ignore him, and so he and Nissa continue to explore. They are lured into a room that has low oxygen levels, forcing them to don their helmets. They are surprised to see a group of Greek men working on machines, seemingly oblivious to the lack of oxygen. Adric again tries to get their attention, and he notices that their skin is ice cold. Nissa notices a small disc on each of their hands, and when she tries to examine it, Monarch, who has been watching their progress, sends a signal to the man to brush her aside. Confused, Adric and Nissa continue to explore. Back in the Grand Hall, the Mayan women finish their dance and they are replaced by two groups of dragon dancers. Tegan says that they should go and look for the others as they could be in danger, but the doctor says that they are safe. Tegan calls him mad and the doctor says that she should take his advice and look as if they are enjoying themselves to prevent persuasion from becoming suspicious. Bygone enters once the dance is finished and summons a pair of hoplite soldiers to give a demonstration of their combat skills. He goes to the doctor and tells him to pretend that he's, that he's explained the rules of the fight before saying that he must speak to him in private. The doctor tells him to meet him in their room and he provides a distraction so that Bygone can slip away unnoticed. A short while later, the combat ends with one of the hoplites being stabbed through the chest. The body is dragged away and Kokuchi then summons a group of his people to perform a ceremonial dance. The Doctor and Tegan slip away and make their way back to their quarters where they find Bygone waiting. Tegan begins to cry after having watched the fight, but Bygone says that it isn't what it seems. Elsewhere, Nissa and Adric enter another lab, being overseen by a group of Chinese technicians. They suddenly see the boat hoplites enter and watch as the one who was stabbed through the chest make his way onto a bench. They then watch as a dome is put over him, which emits a bright light. The dome is then removed and they see the wound completely healed. Monarch then orders them to be brought to him and the hoplites apprehend them. Back in their quarters, Bygone tells the Doctor and Tegan that the Urbanka first came to Earth 35,000 years ago and that they abducted Kirkuchi. He says that Monarch has managed to double the speed of the ship with each successive trip, lessening the amount of time it will take to travel between the two planets. The Doctor wonders how anyone could live that long and Bygone reveals that none of the humans they saw are actually alive. He then peels away his chest and opens his face to reveal that he is a robot. Part 3. Bygone pulls a computer chip out of his chest and says that this is where his personality and memories are stored. The Doctor is amazed by the technology used to create Bygone and tries to make Tegan appreciate it, but she refuses. The Doctor says that that must be how the rest of the Urbanka are being stored, 
but Bygone says that the representatives of the human cultures are actually slave robots. Bygone says that Monarch intends to conquer Earth so that he can access its minerals like silicon and carbon to help craft the materials needed to make more robots. He says that Monarch will pretend to help Earth by offering them new technologies and then he will put his plans into action. He tells the Doctor and Tegan that Monarch wants to use them to help assure humanity of his well-meaning, but Tegan refuses to be used as a pawn. However, Bygone says that Monarch has a deadly toxin on board and that he will use it on humanity if they do not help him. Meanwhile, in his control room, Monarch tells Nissa and Adric that he means them no harm. He tells them his and the other's true nature, but grows irritated when Nissa says that they are androids. Nissa says that the Earth robots are little more than slaves, but Monarch and Enlightenment say that such terms are reminiscent of the flesh time, which they explain was when their bodies were susceptible to disease and death. Monarch says that he has defeated these things by converting the Urbanka to their current synthetic forms. Adric, sensing Monarch's growing anger, says that they are amazed by what he has accomplished. Monarch, happy to hear this, says that they can help him in his crusade to give Earth the same salvation he gave the Urbanka. Adric expresses admiration for this, especially when Monarch highlights humanity's violent and self-destructive nature, but Nyssa refuses the idea. Adric says that war and famine will be eradicated with the help of the Urbanka, but she says that it will only lead to tyranny. Enlightenment berates her for her scientific arrogance, but Monarch says that she will come around. Nyssa again refuses, saying that the Monarch is no better than the Master, but Adric says that she is wrong. Monarch asks about the Master, and Adric proceeds to tell him. Back in the Doctor's quarters, Bygone says that Monarch was the real reason that the Urbanka's home planet was destroyed. He says that Monarch pillaged its resources, which caused pollution that destroyed the atmosphere and left the planet ravaged by radiation. The Doctor asks what Monarch's true aim is, and Bygone says that Monarch wants to unlock the secrets of faster-than-light travel so he can travel back in time and prove his belief that he's actually the universe's creator. The Doctor asks Bygone why he hasn't turned on Monarch, and Bygone says that there is a failsafe mechanism in his body that is rigged to go off at any sign of resistance. Doctor says that he has no other choice but to go along with Monarch's plan. Bygone says that it is too dangerous and that he will eventually end up like Bygone and the others. Tegan becomes hysterical at this and ignores the Doctor's pleas to listen to him. Doctor asks Bygone to show him where the personality chips are kept. Tegan again says that they need to leave, but Doctor tells her to stop thinking about herself, saying that they need to save the rest of humanity, but they cannot warn them directly as they will not be believed. He tells her to stay in the room as she will be safer there and goes with Bygone. At that moment, Adric tells Monarch about the Time Lords, the Doctor and the TARDIS, but Nissa tells him to shut up. Monarch tells Adric to continue and once he is done, he asks Adric to go to the Doctor and ask him to give Monarch a tour of the TARDIS. However, he keeps Nissa with him and says that he has other plans for her. He has Enlightenment hypnotized her so that she can be prepared to have her memory transferred to a robot before her body is disposed of. They then get an alert that a security drone has gone offline, and Monarch angrily demands that the Doctor be found. They track his movements by monitoring the security drones that he renders inoperable. The Doctor and Bygone then go into the room with the Greek robots, who Bygone says are working on calculations to create faster than light travel, and says that they, in a thousand years, Monarch will have achieved it. Adric returns to the guest quarters and asks Tegan where the Doctor is. He tells her about Monarch's magnanimous nature, but then gets angry when she ignores him and says that she is going to the TARDIS in order to warn Earth. He says that she can't fly it, nor can she get into it, but she produces the spare key the Doctor gave her and says that he, he can either help her or get out of her way. 
They briefly struggle and Tegan throws Adric to the floor as she runs past him, unaware that he hits his head on a bench as he fell, knocking him out. She manages to get inside the TARDIS, unaware that she is being watched by Monarch and the others. They turn their attention back to tracking the Doctor, who has been guided by Bygone through the gardens, which the Doctor notices houses several containers holding frogs. Bygone says that they are the source of the poison that Monarch intends to use. They then make their way to the lab area, overseen by Lin Futu and his people. Bygone tells Lin Futu that Monarch gave him instructions to show the Doctor around, but he eavesdrops on them and then leaves when he hears Bygone telling the Doctor where the personality chips are stored. Bygone says that he was once imprisoned in the storage unit after attempting to lead a revolt. He then tells how the transfer process works and spots Nissa in the transfer pod. They put her out of it and after she comes to, she tells him about Adric being sent to find him and Monarch's interest in the TARDIS. The Doctor asks Bygone if the cultural leaders will join them in an uprising, but Bygone says that they have been corrupted with promises of control over their people when they return to Earth. The Doctor asks if they could use the slave robots, and Bygone says they may be able to, but they would have to reprogram their circuitry. Nissa asks the Doctor to borrow his sonic screwdriver and pencil, as she wants to test the theory. Adric then arrives and tells the Doctor about Tegan, but before he can react, Persuasion arrives with a pair of hoplites and orders them and the Mandarin robots to apprehend the Doctor and the others. Meanwhile, a tearful Tegan manages to get the TARDIS working and it dematerializes, much to Monarch's delight as it means he doesn't need the Doctor anymore. At that moment, Persuasion orders Bygone to be taken away to be decircuited and he orders the Doctor to be killed. Adric protests as the hoplite prepares to behead the Doctor. Part 4 Nissa rushes forward and touches the sonic screwdriver and pen against the hoplite's control disc, immobilizing it. She does the same to the one holding Adric, and then he rushes forward, begging persuasion to spare the Doctor's life. In his control room, Monarch and Enlightenment commend Adric's bravery and Nissa's intelligence. Adric says that if they hurt the Doctor, then he will not join them in their crusade. Monarch agrees and orders them to be brought to him and that the sonic screwdriver be confiscated. Persuasion then forces them to the control room at gunpoint. En route, they see that the TARDIS has materialised just outside the cruiser. Once in the control room, Monarch berates the Doctor for his behaviour whilst being a guest, but the Doctor counters this by saying that hosts aren't meant to kill their guests. Monarch says that he is only defending himself against the Doctor's plotting, but he promises not to harm him or the other so long as he behaves. He sends Nissa back to Lin Fushu and then sends the Doctor and Adric back to the gathering hall to watch more entertainment. However, the Doctor leads Adric back to the guest quarters and proclaims that he was mistaken about Monarch, but proceeds to give him backhanded compliments, loud and clear enough for the repaired security drones to pick them up. Adric is delighted at this and says that was what he was trying to say all along. The Doctor says that he will seek an audience with Monarch, but first suggests going to the gathering hall to watch the entertainment. When they arrive, they see Bygone watching an Aboriginal dance and they go take their own seats in the upper gallery, all the while watched by persuasion. As they make their way to their seats, the Doctor calls Adric a naive idiot and says that Monarch is one of the biggest threats to the universe. Adric is shocked by this and tells the Doctor that he is wrong, but the Doctor says about Monarch's true objective to go back in time and prove his belief of being the universal creator. Adric still doubts him, even when the Doctor mentions the poison that Monarch has on board. Adric points out that Monarch could have let the Doctor die, but the Doctor replies that Monarch can't risk alienating Adric due to his need to have him lull humanity into a false sense of security. Adric asks how he intends to stop Monarch, but the Doctor says that he won't tell him unless he can f- be sure he fully trusts him. Adric agrees, and the Doctor then makes a show of being tired before leading Adric back to their quarters. 
They not release Adric to the storage lab, saying that they will need to take down Monarch. Inside, he is confronted by Lin Fushu, but the doctor begs him to hear him out. He tells him that Monarch has no intention of holding up his end of the bargain, pointing out that he will have no need of him once he controls all of humanity. Lin Fushu agrees to help restore Bygone, and the doctor tells him to send out his dragon dancers to cause a distraction. The doctor and Adric then return to the gathering hall and take the now docile Bygone with them inside one of the dragon costumes, which they use as a cover to get him back to the lab. Lin Fushu restores Bygone whilst the doctor wakes up Nyssa. Bygon says that he will win over Villagra and Krokuchi over to their side, and the Doctor says that he and Adric will need to get on board the TARDIS. Lin Futu gives Adric a spacesuit, as the Doctor says that he can survive for a limited time without their protection, and so they can exit one of the exterior hatches in order to float to the TARDIS. The Doctor asks if they will be able to take control of the other robots, and Bygon says that there is a failsafe that they can exploit, where if all the cultural groups are acting in proximity to each other at the same time, then their normal command subroutines are halted. This works, as Monarch is shocked when he sees them all in the gathering hall performing their various cultural performances, and he orders Nissa to be killed, unaware that the Doctor has already freed her. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Adric go to one of the external hatches, and the Doctor tethers himself to the doorway before launching himself into space. Suddenly, Persuasion appears and aims a gun at Adric, but misses, and Adric manages to disarm him. However, when he uses the gun against Persuasion, he finds that the blasts go right through him, and Persuasion starts to strangle him. The Doctor pulls himself back in and manages to rip Persuasion's personality chip out of his body, rendering him immobile. The Doctor then throws him into space before retrieving his sonic screwdriver from Persuasion and launching himself back into space. However, just before he reaches the TARDIS, the rope runs out and he looks back to see Enlightenment appear and knock out Adric before untying the rope. The Doctor drifts away as he watches Adric get up and struggle with Enlightenment. Adric manages to remove her personality chip and also flings into space before turning to help the Doctor but seeing the rope was already adrift. With little time left, the Doctor takes a cricket ball from his pocket and throws it against the side of the cruiser, using its returning momentum to propel him to the TARDIS. He gets inside the TARDIS, finding a frustrated Tegan delighted to see him. He then materialises the TARDIS inside the gathering hall and tells Tegan to bring a couple of their breeding helmets with her as they exit. They are confronted by a furious monarch, but the Doctor tells Tegan to run, and they meet up with the others at the storage lab. He tells everyone to put on their helmets as Monarch has lowered the oxygen level. He goes into a trance to preserve his own oxygen, whilst Lin Fushu quickly repairs another helmet for him. Once that is fixed, the Doctor tells Bygon to change the course of the ship back to Arbanka, and he then goes to retrieve the poison from the containment area. The Doctor then faces the security drone and tells Monarch that he is better off returning home and then leads the others back to the TARDIS. They are there confronted by Monarch, but before he can raise his weapon against them, the Doctor hurls the container of poison at him, which shatters all over him and shrivels Monarch's organic components, shrinking him down. The Doctor then traps him in one of the breeding helmets, telling the others that Monarch is still mostly organic and that was why the garden lab existed on a ship full of robots. Tegan asks if they can go home, and the Doctor asks Bygon and the others if they will join him, but Bygon says they have decided to try colonising a new world for themselves. On the TARDIS, the Doctor sets course for Heathrow, but suddenly Nyssa calls out for him as she collapses to the floor. End of the story. So... Just when we thought crisis was averted, apparently we're left on a cliffhanger for the first time in ages. <laughs> so, in order to t- 
tide us over for the time being. We'll take a quick detour to the trivia spot. So, Trish, what have you got for us this week? Cool. So, the air date for Fort Doomsday is the 18th to 26th of January, 1982. The writer of the story is Terence Dudley. We previously spoke about Terence in his capacity as director for the story Megalos, and then again for his writing of the K9 and Company pilot, The Girl's Best Friend. This is his first of three Doctor Who writing credits. We'll see it again in Black Orchid and The King Siemens. The director of the story is John Black. We also spoke about John Black when we discussed Canine Company, as he directed that too, and he also directed Keeper of Tracking. This is his final Doctor Who credit. So I mentioned last week that last week's story, though the first of the season, wasn't actually the first film. That would be this story, for the Doomsday. So Peter Davison has often said that his first stories were recorded out of sequence so that Castrovalva might include a more confident performance on his part. There's also a more practical reason. A little over a month before it was due to in front of cameras, Project Zeta Sigma, which was at the time going to be the first story, was shelved by John Nathan Turner. And since there wasn't time to get a whole new story ready, the production order had to be revised. The out-of-order recording had nothing to do with any lack of confidence in Davis. Castrovalva was simply wasn't written by the time the Fifth Doctor needed to make his debut in front of the cameras. Now, it is said on like Blu-rays and stuff like that that there was also the component of wanting to have the group feeling more connected. Um, but I mean, if there was nothing for them to film, then that is an understandable reason as well. Mm. As well as being the first Fifth Doctor story filmed, this is also the last story to be released on VHS, which is obviously massively outdated now, but good to know mm. for anyone who collected VHS back in the day. The working title for the story was Day of Wrath, which... I think makes just as much sense as Fort Doomsday, perhaps. Um, this is the first Doctor Who story since, well, it says here since the Monster of Peladon, not to feature the fourth Doctor in any capacity. I think they may be meant since Planet of the Spiders. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know who filled in that line on the TARDIS wiki, but yeah, no, since Planet of the yeah. Spiders. To not feature the fourth Doctor in any capacity. It's the first Doctor Who televised story since Megalos not to be part of a wider story arc either. You mentioned this as fainting spell, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of a throwback to the style of serial transition that we had during the first Doctor era. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not necessarily meant to be a continuation in terms of like the trilogy that we had for the Master and stuff like that. Um, it's just a carryover into the next story. Um, and the reason why she collapsed will be revealed next week. Mm-hmm. Philip Locke, who played Bygone, also provided the voice of Control in Part 1 and 2, but was uncredited on screen. Part 1 establishes the date of Logopolis and the opening scenes of Castrovalva by revealing that the flight taken was trying to catch Logopolis. His flight A778 at 17.30 on the 20th of February 1981 which retroactively set Legopolis to be on the same date it was broadcast. Pre-Davis probably didn't enjoy this serial because he was new and he felt he didn't really know what he was doing. We can talk later on when we talk about the Doctor if we agree with that mm. assessment. Matthew Waterhouse felt Adip's reason for citing the villain made no sense and he resented it, his character being made to have bad motives and beliefs for no reason other than for the other characters to tell them that they were bad. Mm. Um, Stafford Johns was disappointed with how awkward unrecognisable he was as Monarch in the finished programme, and this was after he requested latex rather than the traditional mask he was supposed to wear. The mask he was supposed to wear was much like those worn by his co-stars playing Persuasion and Enlightenment. 
He refused, mm. fearing that the mask would hamper his performance. As a compromise, the makeup department created a thin latex mask each day for him to wear. It was laborious to apply and could only be used once since it was destroyed when it was removed. But laid his concerns about the mask. He couldn't drink well on set because he couldn't get out of the costume to go to the lavatory. It was a lot of work for one performance. Hmm. Um, the Aboriginal character's dialogue and Tegan's when she demonstrates she can speak his language was originally scripted as plausible sounding gibberish. Janet Fielding, who was Australian, felt this was insulting and requested hmm. that the writer consult the BBC's language department to rewrite the dialogue in an actual Aboriginal language. The one they settled on was Tiwi, T-I-W-I, I'm not sure how that's pronounced. Good girl, Janet. Yeah, very much so. We've spoken about how Matthew Waterhouse has had issues with cast members before, not getting along very well with them, having rocky starts, etc. Unfortunately, that did extend to his relationship with Peter Davison. He got off to a rocky start when he pointed out mistakes that Peter was making and told him that he would never be as good as Tom. <laughs> that, Matthew, is overstepping more yeah. than a little bit. Also, t- tell- telling them, telling him that you'll never be as good as they're going to treat you like shit for your entire working relationship with him. <laughs> Bit of a weird flex. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about our cast. So, as the monarch, yeah. as I said, we have Stafford Johns. He's the only Doctor Who acting credit for Stafford. His non-Who credits include The Lady Colors, Count of Monte Cristo, A Night to Remember, Zed Cars, Jack and Ori, Softly Softly, and Softly Softly Task Force. Stafford passed away in 2002. As Persuasion, we have Paul Shelley. This is his only on-screen Doctor Who credit, so he did do a number of voices for Big Finish. His non-Who credits include Blake Seven, Macbeth, Revelations, and Breakaway. As Enlightenment, we have Annie Lambert. This is also her only Doctor Who acting credit. Her non-who credits include Private Affairs, Midsummer Murders, Space 1999, and Howard's Way. As Bygone, we have Philip Bach, only Doctor Who acting credit once more for Philip. In his non-who credits include Codename Icarus, The Box of Delights, and James Bond Thunderwall. And also the, the, the Porridge movie. Cool. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, Lin Putu was played by Bert I think it's Quack. I think I think it's Bert Quack. Okay, Quack. Again, only on screen Doctor, Doctor Who credits, though he also did some work for Big Finish. His non-Who credits include Last of the Summer Wine, James Bond Goldfinger, and then a rush of Pink Panther films. Return of the Pink Panther, Pink Panther Strikes Again, Revenge of the Pink Panther, Trail of the Pink Panther, Curse of the Pink Panther, and Sons of the Pink Panther. Lynn passed away wa- thousand, or Birth passed away in 2016, rather. Yeah, he was. Um, I I think I can't remember the name. I think it was Cato, but he was basically Inspector Clouseau's sidekick, whose whole gimmick was that he would randomly attack him in his own house, and leading to just like loads of slapstick fights. But he was also like his, um, basically his sidekick throughout the entire film series. Mm. Okay, I'm gonna get the next name horribly wrong as well. Kirkutsi? Kirkutsi. Kirkutsi, thank you. Um, mm-hmm. It's played by Ilario Bissi-Pedro. He's the only Doctor Who acting credit. None who credits include Children of Men, Kinky Boots, The Bill, and Rottweiler. 
Solario passed away in 2013. And lastly, as Villagra, we have Nadia Hammond, is their only Doctor Who acting credit. And actually, her only other known acting credit was in a 1982 episode of Play for Today. And that brings us to the end of our cast. Thank you for that lovely trivia, uh, as always. It's, it's it's always kind of cool as well, like when you... The, this is the one thing I, I, I like about the trivia section, other than the fact that we get the interesting tidbits, is that if you like an actor's performance, you do get a recommended list of stuff for the check them out in. So, like, you know, we talked before mm. about Philip Maddock. We talked about Bernard Kay. Here we have Bert Kwok, who I actually kind of like from, like, Last of Summer Wine and his other, like, appearances and different things. So I always, like, yeah... Like I saw one there, um, Children of Men, which is a fantastic film. I it, it also had like one of the most audible collective group you know, gasps when a guy gets hit in the head with a typewriter. Like I, it was just it was the most unique watching experience I've ever had, where the entire room just went ooh at the same time. <laughs> but we now come on to the. Uh, main section of the podcast like I keep coming up with a brand new term for this fucking part it's the character discussion where myself and Trish we take a look at the main characters from the story uh, so it'd be the doctor the companions would be Adric Tegan and Nyssa prominent characters is mostly bygone I feel yeah I would agree and then we have the villains of mainly monarch but persuasion and enlightenment are there as well for a bit of discussion, I think. Hmm. So, cool. as you did socials, that means you go first. So, yes. Starting off with the doctor, what are your thoughts? Um, honestly, despite his misgivings, I think Peter did a really good performance here. Like, I, I thought that he just felt so natural in the role, you know. And especially for this is if this is the first thing that he shot, it's I don't see any case of jitters or I don't see anything. It 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 almost feels like you know he's been doing this for a while. Um, like we get to see a lot of good facets from him here. I think um, there's his intelligence, uh, his ingenuity, especially when dealing with the um, the security drones. Like the, the, there's like this disarming charm about him as he makes his way around and i think he does a really good job and we talked about it last week is displaying the age of wisdom beyond his youthful appearance um i loved his interaction mostly with nissa like i i think his best interactions are with bygone and nissa in this story uh like in terms of the companions like himself and nissa are like science batman and robin like mm. he there it, it's just so nice to see it like he when there, when he goes out of the TARDIS at the start, and he takes a look around and he comes back and he singles her out to say, like, there's a lot of interesting technology out there for us to take a look at, young lady, or for you to take at, young lady. Like, he doesn't do that for Adric and he doesn't do it for Tegan. It's like he's, it's it's like Nissa is his protege at this stage, you know? Mm. Um, I like these discussions with Bygone because... I think it lended itself to a very good performance from, uh, forgive me now, I have to take a look at his name, uh, but from Philip uh, that played by God. I think it lended itself to a very mm. good, um, compassionate performance from him. 
I thought they worked really well off each other. Um, so yeah, I I I I liked him. For, I liked him for this one. Okay, very good. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe you not so much. <laughs> not really. I'm not gonna oh, lie. Um, okay. I I got the feeling watching it that Peter was uncomfortable. And okay, I and bear in mind, uh, I watched it before I like I watched the first episode before I did the notes. Yeah. And I did get the sense that he was a bit uncomfortable in the role, unsure of himself, which is fine. Like, it's not a big thing. Um, But in terms of the Doctor himself, I found it that he was interesting and not necessarily in a good way. Um, What I mean oh. by that is the way he reacted to the other Earthlings of the ship was very odd and not like the Doctor we've seen before. So... There's a big question on why he didn't understand the Aboriginal language and why no one could understand the Aboriginal language. Um, Because, no offence to um, Aboriginal people, but they're not older than Gallifreyan history. So, I mean, there's no reason why Mm. the TARDIS shouldn't be able to do the language. Um, Yeah, no, that's an inconsistency that comes up, I think, quite a bit that the TARDIS Universal Translator somehow manages to just... I think that was probably done so that Tegan would get a bit of a shine in the story. Maybe, but it just doesn't make sense. But also what I didn't yeah. feel like in that scene is that he does a little bit of a racist play on um, on Lidfutu's name. Um, and he somehow doesn't know how to address Villagra. Which is not something, like, if that was Doc John or Tom or anyone else, you would expect him to recognize the custom, know how to interact, even if he couldn't speak the language, know how mm-hmm. to interact and know how to greet them. And it just came across, like, I mean, like, his his thing, his slightly, like, again, it was racist or whatever, comment to Linfutu on his name. And I'm kind of like, okay, why why are you... Why are you doing that? It's very weird. Um, what was the what was the racial component there? I'm trying to remember exactly what he said, but basically he made a joke at Lin Futu's name. Um, oh yes, or when yes, Lin Futu I, introduced himself, he made a joke. Yeah, um, I'll just I'll actually because I'm just curious there now, so I'll actually take a look at it. Um, because I'm Lin Futu, well, I'd never have guessed it. You look in the best of health to me. I don't get the joke. Yeah, neither do I. Was what I thought. I, I wonder. I was like, was I missing something? Was it meant to be? Is it a slightly racist thing or whatever? Um, I was like, random. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And like, why? I do agree with you. Like his dynamic with with Bygon is very good. His dynamic with Nissa is very good. His dynamics with Adric and Tegan are. Kind of horrific, like particularly with Tegan. Like I, we'll get to her in a minute, but like he's so not considerate of her. Like when you compare his dynamics with Adric and Tegan this week compared to his dynamics with them last week, when mm. last week he was in the middle of a regeneration, he was at the surf, whatever. He just seems to find Tegan annoying, um, and doesn't seem to give her any measure of 
trust or whatever by giving her the keys to Tannis. And Adric, I think the way he reacted to Adric, you know, um, siding with the monarch and stuff, I don't think, I don't know, I just didn't like him calling him an idiot and all that kind of stuff. It was just like, dude, what are you, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you being like this? You know? Mm. So, personally, I wasn't the biggest fan of him in this story. Um, I did try to give it a bit of leeway, knowing it was Peter's first. I just think the way the Doctor was written in this story was just a bit shit. <laughs> um, like, I, I agree, all right, that when it comes to the Adric and uh, Tegan components, like, I have comments about Tegan, but at the same time, it's like, I th- I would have thought that he could have handled her in a in a in a better way, and with, with Adric's whole thing is, yeah, like like calling like you know calling him naive, yeah, it's perfectly fine. The idiot component of it though is a bit like I do like like the only I think the last time the Doctor like called one of his companions something like idiotic or was Harry when he called him an imbecile. Yeah, like calling Adric an idiot, it it had that ringing of shut up, Wesley. Do you know? Yeah. Um, which was uncalled for in that story of Star Trek. I don't think it's uncalled for here, and mm-hmm. particularly when you consider the fact that like Adric looks up to the Doctor in a big way. He clearly tries to model himself after him. He tries to behave like him, not always for the betterment, but he tries. And so to have. Mm the doctor just call him an idiot as opposed to being like okay Edward explain to me what was said to you do you know mm-hmm. and like trying to guide him through it um I don't know it just it struck me wrong and it just felt really awkward yeah no I, I, I can I can see that uh, component to it hmm. I think I think he's probably at his best wish in the send by God but not so much with uh, Adric and Tegan yeah, and even then, with Nissa and Bygone, like I said, I think it was a little bit of me knowing this is his first story, but I did find Peter seemed a bit clunky at times, or unsure of his performance at times. Um, not that that takes from the overall story, which is something that I did notice when I was watching, that he didn't seem as in the zone this week as he was last week. Okay, yeah. I think it's, like... I think it's actually kind of cool that we've had like such varying takes on them this time around. Because normally, you know, like when like, mm. we're in kind of sync, it's like we're just kind of saying, "Yeah, pretty much what you said." But like here, we're like, we're not entirely on the same page, which I think is kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. But um, then we have our companions. Yeah. So, so do we? Do you want to go from worst to best? I don't know. You get to go first. So, so you pick. Yeah. So yeah, like uh, we'll start off. I think we'll go Adric, Tegan, and Nissa. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Adric, someone took a hard left turn into assholeville here. Like, <laughs> it's like the the sexism and just picking on Tegan. Like, where the fuck does that come from? Like, just saying that they're not as intelligent and like, oh, like, what was he said? Like to like, oh, that Nissa was just a girl and not a woman or something like that. And it's just like. Where the f- like seriously? Where the fuck is it all coming from? Because yeah, they were never like this to Nissa before, 
and a part of me is like is like the whole kind of firstborn child syndrome where he's just now picking on people and being condescending because he has them to compete with him for the doctor's attention um so yeah like it took like that really put me on a, like an entire sour note for the entire story here with adric because he just does seem to bitch and moan for the entire story um and then as well like it's the, the one thing that is kind of i would have thought that given his experiences like recently especially the one he had on oh the planet which um stated with the vampires like where mm. they don't trust altru like seemingly altruistic people until you've taken a complete look around like i would have thought like he'd be he'd be a bit more savvy to that but here it's um he kind of drinks the kool-aid a small bit and the other thing then as well like no this isn't necessarily anything to do with adric but just on your comment there about how he was giving peter uh notes and like commenting on his performance Mm. i think it's a bit rich that matthew is giving peter like direction or corrections when his line delivery is very questionable at times here because it Mm. it's like it's like some of his line delivery is like oh nissa i'm just playing like it, it it's almost like it's coming across as like he's just playing along with monarch but then it's like oh no no he 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 actually does believe him he he's fully on board with this plan so that line delivery is just very confusing yeah um so yeah i'm not a fan of adric in this story i would agree i think this is probably the first story that truly had me understanding why people don't like adric because like he's had awkward moments in previous stories, but like here it's just like the chauvinistic asshole. What the fuck? Also, the idiotic chauvinistic asshole. Do you know? So like he thinks that because he's good at maths, that he is the superior intelligence. Mm. You know, after the doctor, but then when they leave the TARDIS, Nissa knows how everything works. Knows where everything is. And he's just that kid who was caught lying about being smart. Yeah. You know, where she's like, oh, you know what this is? He's like, yeah, of course I do. It's, um, it's, uh, it's the, um, it's the, of course, of course I do. Of course, of course I do. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And even when she sends him off to do things, like, he gets so, like, put out by everything. Um, it's just mm. a bit ridiculous. And to your point, I don't know where it came from because him and Nessa were really pally before and now mm-hmm. suddenly they're not. His treatment yeah. of Tegan is just horrendous. Like, mm. you know, Tegan, and maybe it's because he spent most of last week's story um, not actually interacting with Tegan in reality because obviously he was doing his mental projections whether intentional or non to Nissa, not to Tegan. But mm. like Tegan really held her own last week, Adric. You know, she did, you know, put best foot forward, was fucking doing everything she could while you were fucking tied up in a web. Like cop on now, like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. The only thing I can think of is that our writer for this story, 
you know, whose turn still to be, just didn't have a clue how to write a super intelligent teenager. Like, I think back to um, Brendan in hmm. Canine and Company, who is also quite intelligent for his age, not as super intelligent as Roger, but he's quite hmm. intelligent for his age. And Brendan actually wasn't written too badly. Um, no. So I don't know what it is about this that like he's presented with the character of Adric and just makes him a chauvinistic, idiotic asshole who also doesn't know how to shut his mouth. Like mm. he's there telling the monarch fucking everything, like literally everything. Like, dude, shut up! Like, what are you doing? Like, this is not your first rodeo. You know you should be keeping some things close to the chest. Like, what are you doing? This is ridiculous. So, I, I found him doing massive pain in the ass. And I took a small amount of pleasure in the fact that he gets shot with that ray multiple times directly in the face. <laughs> it doesn't do anything, clearly, other than disorientate him a little bit. But yeah. he gets shot in the face multiple times. And in this particular story, I felt he deserved it. Yeah, no, it's just like... <laughs> like cuz i remember before we before we started adric's tenure on the show i was like yeah i remember not liking adric a whole lot and then like when we did the first three stories and we did Legopolis and i was like actually no no it's pretty good and then like i watched this and i'm like ah yeah now i remember <laughs> <laughs> oh god um so let's move on to the target of his um ire so tegan and i'm a bit of a mixed bag on tegan here and Mm. i don't necessarily think that it's down to janet's performance i think it's probably down to the writing of tegan herself because Mm. i think she's off to a good start especially the part with kirkuchi like Mm. that she she's very respectful when speaking to him and you know like that the whole doesn't there it's it is clearly a thing that has carried over into the expanded universe uh in relation to tegan's relationship with uh indigenous australians mm-hmm. uh so it was kind of nice to see like the seeds of it here um but like then it's just she kind of devolves into very damsel in distressy mm-hmm. and i think it's 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 a combination of the writing and also the shooting schedule because for me a lot of her dialogue is it's not spoken it's either shouted or it's moaned Mm. and then with the shooting schedule for me it's kind of jarring that she's able to well maybe in the moment or with like an adrenaline surge, she's able to grasp the fact that that mathematics can create the physical construct she's seen since the time on Logopolis and Castrovalva. But she's completely skeptical of the the concept of cybernetics here in robotics. Like she, like she, she can't like, did she say that it was monstrous or disgusting or something like that? Yeah. Like, in fairness, I don't disagree with her on that. But no, no, but no, like, no, sorry, no, no, it's, it's not, it's not that, it's the, it's, it's the fact that robotics and, and cybernetics, or the way that I took it up was that 
she can't believe that robotics and, sci- and cybernetics have advanced to such a state that's possible as opposed to the morality of it so it, it just like that was the way that i took it up i might i might have actually taken it up wrong now that you're I, saying it no i think she was focused on the morality side but i think yeah I think there was yeah. disbelief on oh my god it actually gets gets to this point uh, which isn't mm. you know completely misunderstandable for someone from 1981 either um but no i think her disgusting comment was the idea that you would take someone's memories and put them into a robot body i think that i think that was yeah. her Oh yeah, okay. yeah. The, okay, the mora- the morality aspect, yeah. So, like, if that's the case, uh, that I I took that up wrong. Um, but no, it's just like she does kind of for for most of the story. And again, look, I and she had a very good kind of monologue at the start where she's like, she has reached her breaking point. You know, it's mm-hmm. like everything that happened to Aunt Vanessa, everything that she's been through since Lagopolis and Castrovalva. Like, so obviously, yeah, she's upset. It's understandable. But it just kind of does seem to devolve a small bit damsel in distressy. And I agree, like, that the part where, like, the doctor basically tells her, like, you'll stop thinking about yourself. It's like, I I know there's a better way for you to handle that. Absolutely, there's a better way for you to kind of make her realize the bigger picture without basically calling her a crybaby. You know, yeah. Um, I agree with you on a lot of that. Um, yeah, I wasn't the biggest fan of her at the start of at the very start of the story. I mean, she mentioned losing her job at four times in the first fifteen minutes. Mm, yeah, it's very annoying. It... I know that again. That's the thing about Tegan is like Tegan is known as like I want to go back to Heathrow. Get me back to Heathrow. Yeah. Fuck off, Tegan. Like yeah, and I, and I. And I do kind of agree, like you would add to it, it's a fucking time machine. <laughs> yeah, but also, like, I mean, her stress is completely warranted, her burnout is completely warranted, that's completely fine. But again, it's this thing of, like, write something else for her to fucking say. Mm. Like, there has to be something else. Like, you can't just have her repeating the same line over and over and over again. And I'm going to disagree with you, but I think Janet's acting in this one was very poor. Um, Her line deliveries were, I mean, yes, she's repeating the same line over and over again, which isn't helpful. But the way she delivers them, I think, again, compared to last week, is a bit of a slip. Bear in mind, I will reiterate something I said last week. Janet is not a massively experienced actress at this point in time. Yeah. So again, we'll give her a little bit of leeway, but again, it's compared to Castro Valva. Even her performance is a massive step backwards. I keep thinking to like that scene where she's in the TARDIS on her own, she's trying to figure out how it works, and she's just breaking down. And at one point, she starts crying, and it's the weirdest on screen crying I've ever seen in my life. It's like a cross between crying and like laughing and dry heaving. I don't know what the fuck she was doing. Um, But like that sort of takes you out of it and even yeah. like with that scene like we've got her trying to pilot the TARDIS by herself because she wants to go warn people and whatever but like compared to last week where she like was like cool you know air hostess jacket off sleeves rolled up okay we're going to do this we're going to do this it's going to be I'm going to figure it out fucking on task on target fucking focused whatever like I was saying last week I thought she was brilliant last week 
Oh, fuck, fantastic. This week, my woman will shut the fuck up. Mm. You are wrecking my head. Um, I I do agree with you. The bit of her with Kapuji, I think, was brilliant. I think that's also part of where her issue, morally speaking, with the um robotics came from. Mm. Um, the idea that like Kapuji isn't actually Kapuji; he's like a robotic version of him. Um, because they start to like Kapuji is like the oldest of them. So like he was one of the first that was taken and whatever so um you know I, I do like that component of it but for the rest of it i was like bitch will you shut the fuck up oh actually one <laughs> one two additional things one she's a very good artist credit mm. where it's due her drawing was fabulous and number two you know, go back to what you're saying about how the doctor was treating her a bit like shit in the sense of being like you know basically saying like stop being so selfish or whatever, like she says, like we need to go back to Earth and warn them, and he's just bobbing up, being like, as if they believe us, you know. Mm. I think she's not wrong. She's not wrong no. to want the things that she wants, and she's not being selfish and wanting them either. Do you know? It sort of reminds me of, do you know when you have someone who, actually, I'm gonna give you an example. I'll give you a personal example. I put forward a proposal a couple of months ago for me and my team to go to South Africa to visit a team member that we have there. And from the minute I started talking to people about like, oh, I'm putting together a proposal to go to Cape Town, blah, blah, blah. Everyone and their mother, everyone and my mother, actually, everyone and my dad, right? My dad was, my dad was a big one, to be honest, mm. was saying how I was just doing it for a free trip, for a free holiday and whatever. Because I had joked that I hadn't travelled for work in a while. And that I missed South Africa. And I would love to go back to South Africa. I've been there before. It's absolutely lovely. I'm like, okay. Those two things can both be true. I can miss South Africa and want to go back there again. And I can have a perfectly justifiable business reason why I believe we should go. And it shouldn't be construed. The only reason I'm writing the business case is because I want a free trip to South Africa. Like, literally, even my manager was like, oh, I know Trish tried to get us to South Africa. Oh, hard luck, Trish. You know, maybe next time. And I'm like, <laughs> dude, I wasn't... I wasn't doing it for the free trip. <laughs> I was doing it because I felt it was a justifiable business reason for us to go there. And if we were to go anywhere, yeah, if we were to go... I mean, in person, it's just a business reason for us to go to any site that is multilingual, but specifically Cape Town, because we have a team member there, and it's a multilingual site, and it's a 24-hour site, and all these extra reasons, and I was just like, whatever. But that's the sort of the sense I got from that scene, where it's like, Tegan wants to go home. Yes, she's made that scene very clear. And her reasons for home, wanting to go home are selfish. She wants to go home, she wants to go back to her job, she wants to return to her life. That doesn't mean when faced with a crisis and when she's saying we need to get back to Earth to warn them that she's still being selfish. Like, mm. no. <laughs> Her reasoning for <laughs> wanting to go back to Earth has now changed. Or at least it now has an extra element to it. Don't be a fucking dickhead. Just, like, allow her for a moment. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I said, I... 
basically it's something like that. I'm not a big fan of Tegan in this one. She had her nice moment with um Kikuchi, but that was really about it. And it was only one scene. I would have liked to see more from them. I would have liked to mm. have seen like we hear from Bygone the Bygone is really the only one of the um the four leaders who, you know, uh, sort of leverages his free will and, you know, that type of thing. I would have liked to have seen her trying to convince Kikuchi to help them. Um mm. you know, and have more scenes of them together because I think that was wasted. To be honest, mm. it seemed like a cheap fucking um uh, it just seemed cheap. There's no other way to describe it. I just felt it. It just felt cheap. Um, hmm. Whereas it had the potential to be really, really interesting. Yeah, no, I agree. So now that leaves Nissa. Hmm. And I thought this was a great showing from Nissa. Really, really did. Uh, she's a really, she's a big tech boffin here. Because uh, she, as you said, pointed out, she knows pretty much what every piece of machinery does. Um, I love how the doctor kind of relies on her a lot, uh, second in command type thing. Possibly some of the root cause of Adric's jealousy, but at the same time, dude, you're a mathematician. That's where your strengths lie. She's, she's the tech boffin. You know, know your role. Um, mm-hmm. but. What I like about her here is her stance against Monarch, where she's like, pretty much it's, yeah, you can throw all like the sunshine and rainbows on it, but at the end of the day, we know that I know and you know that you're just swapping one regime out for another. So hmm. don't, you can't fucking bullshit me on this one. Um, also, given the fact that she, like even if you take into account like, you know the fact that Adric has been on the TARDIS longer, so if you want to go by seniority, she's not afraid to call him out on his bullshit or his naivety when he thinking like, when he acts like an idiot, which again mm. I also liked. Um, but I think I I'm trying to think about my favorite part with her here, and it's where it's like she very casually asks the Doctor for his sonic screwdriver and, and his pen, and then. It's like, all right, what's going on here? And then at the end, the start of episode four, it's like, oh no, she had a theory, and the theory was that she can disrupt the circuit from the control disc. I was like, like that's just fucking brilliant. <laughs> well done. <laughs> um, so yeah, she was. Pr- Nissa was probably the highlight of the story, I think, for me anyway. I agree. Um, I when we started the story. I was watching it and I was like, okay, Tegan, shut the fuck up. Adric, stop being a prick. Um, and then we had Nissa just stood there reading the math book, being like, fuck you, Adric. I am reading the book you're talking about. Asshole. And then, like, literally from like, that very first moment where she's pointing at everything, she's explaining what everything is, I'm like, cool. And I was waiting for it. I was like, cool. Episode one is going well. Episode one is going well. Come on, let's keep this going now through the other three episodes but I'm so glad that they did and that like Monarch was seeing her as a threat like her mm. intelligence was being recognized like the, I loved her thing with the with the pencil and the sonic screwdriver I thought that was very good I love the way like she's like I don't, I don't know what you're smoking but like this guy is evil he's a tyrant 
Like, I don't know how you can't see it, hmm. but I can. And I love how she stuck by her guns and she didn't let Adric bully yeah. her into hmm. saying something. And also, like, she didn't, like, you, you know, when they were like, oh, take her away, it's not like she tried to change her mind to sort of save her own ass or anything. She was like, no, mm. I, I don't agree with what you're doing, and it's ridiculous, and I'm not going to stand for it. Um, I think I love the fact that, like, even though this is the, the, the big contrast with Tegan, even though she was the one in most peril in this story, do you know? Because she was targeted as a potential ally and then definitely a potential um, hindrance to Monarch. You know, mm. she was going to be changed into a robot and all that kind of stuff. She was the one in mortal danger more so than everyone else. She kept her she kept her cool. She was focused on the task. Very methodical, very scientific, whatever thing. I thought that was great. I thought she did really, really well. I liked seeing the way she was with the Doctor, how they were bouncing back and forth with each other. Like I said, I liked the way that she didn't kowtow to Adric. She didn't let Adric run ramshot over her. The mm. only thing I would have liked to have seen and this may be a much or maybe actually a bit too much in a story where Nitha was very, very good, is I would have liked to have seen her maybe standing up for Tegan, do you know, and kind mm. of telling Adric or the Doctor to stop being dicks to her. <laughs> yeah. But then again, she was carrying a lot of the story on her back and to add that one extra piece may have taken away from everything else. So I mm. thoroughly enjoyed Nissa in this. Probably my favorite Nissa performance to date, I would think. Um yeah. because it kept her it kept her relevant from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. And I'm really curious yeah. how next week is gonna go with her passing out and stuff. I'm really interested in seeing how that resolves itself. Um mm. but yeah, no, I agree with you. I think Nissa did Nissa did great in this one. Yeah, no. For uh sorry Nick, for some reason, you know, the way you were saying about her standing up for Tegan and mm. it's like it, it's not the same thing but the fucking robot chicken sketch came into my head and it was just like going oh sorry I was too busy thinking about all my all the 80 billion people that lived in Alderaan and all my family so it's, like, it's, like, it's not the same context but that just popped into my head That's that'll be Nissa forevermore <laughs> um, you need to go back and get your plane so sorry it's yeah. like my entire planet has been destroyed or anything and my father was <laughs> killed and his body was taken over by them but no no let's worry about you making your fucking plane we're in a time yeah. machine for fuck's sake <laughs> oh Adric idiot you might be good at maths yeah. but you're not good at anything else but I would just like love uh, like the bit where you know she meant she talked about how her father was killed by the master and Adric mm. was like you, you can't compare the monarch to the master and I just cuts and I was like, "Why you just know that Tegan was like, or sorry, this was like, motherfucker, I can compare the two of them. She, more uh, than anyone else, has the right to compare yeah. anyone to the master. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, oh god, yeah. No, yes. Yeah, so, I imagine like, yeah, her I, running thought, I imagine her running like, in her, her inner commentary for most of the stories, like, bitch, please. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Um, but yeah, like I think this is this is. I think that this is probably easily going to stay on the podium, uh, for the, rambling, uh, in terms of best performances. Yeah, 
but it's definitely it's definitely obviously we haven't had that many episodes but i would say like it is definitely on the list i can see it staying yeah. on the list i actually don't know what her future stories are like but i can see this staying on the mm. list yeah uh cool so now move on to prominent characters of which of four potentials there's only one Mm. Um, which I, I, I'm kind of uh, a bit miffed by because I would have loved to have seen like it kind of gave me a small bit of war games vibes you know with the different mm. eras being picked and I would have loved to have seen like more from Kurkuchi and even Princess like Princess Valagra is just she just nods and smiles politely she does a Homer Simpson on it but like I would love to have seen more from everyone else but we are, we have bygone at the very least anyway, mm. and I liked him. I I I've kind of alluded to it throughout the the story here, but I I really liked it because the for me I think the interesting part of bygone's character is that he knows he can be effectively like overwritten at any moment for showing any side of defiance, but he's still willing to help the Doctor and the others try and stop Monarch, and. Like, I really enjoyed Philip's performance because you can see the whole, he is haunted by his existence where he is, he, he knows that he's nothing but like circuits and soldering and elements like his like spirit or soul or whatever you want to call it is just in a small little two inch by three inch little card and you can see the kind of the pain of his existence in his face i really enjoy philip's work with that and i thought he did a great job in like portraying the loss of his old way of life but then again but then also being eager to start the potential new world with the on a new planet with the other different cultures so like his time with the doctor was great yeah like i just i just really enjoyed him here really really enjoyed him yeah i'd agree i I found him to be an interesting character, and I found that, like, as a representation of all of the um, Earthlings in the story, I found him to be really interesting. Because, mm. you know, persuasion and enlightenment are kind of saying, like, oh, he's overstepping, he's doing too much. I think that Monarch defends him in a way, and it's like, we need to have one person who is um, not necessarily a dissenter, but who has potential to dissent um mm. it's important for control which i which i find to be an interesting concept but i love yeah. that it's the i mean i don't know is he meant to be like ancient greek mm-hmm. or whatever um yeah he's a philosopher do you know what i mean like he, he he's meant to be um you know wise beyond his years anyway it's the sort of sense that i, that I get from what they're trying to do with him um and i i really like the way they did it i would have liked a bit more and this this is something that also applied specifically to um Limfutu, but um i get that they, they're cognizant of the fact that they've been on this ship for two and a half thousand years i get that um but i would have liked to have seen more of bygone expressing his original self if that makes sense hmm. yeah like Himself and Linfutu are basically like how they appear 
the fact that like he is an ancient Greek or Roman or whatever he's meant to be. Um, yeah, he's from Athens, so yeah, he's yeah, Greek. He's Athenian. Yeah, so the fact that he's meant to be an Athenian, the fact that Limpluto is meant to be you know from the particular dynasty, or whatever, it doesn't actually play into anything because they just explain all these highly technological terms. Limpluto runs the robot lab, and it's like. Okay, like it makes Bygone interesting, but I want to know more about Bygone himself. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Like, I would have liked an anecdote or a memory or like him sharing something of the man he was before, um, so that we understand him more than just the, you know, computer in this Athenian man's clothes. Yeah. If that makes any sense, I. No, no, it does. I think we get a, a small bit of it, just like just a small sliver of it when Monarch is like dressing him down, and he's like, you know, I'm a lot, as you said, like I'm a he. Like, he points out like, I'm a philosopher. If you didn't want my opinion, you shouldn't have fucking picked me up. You shouldn't have chosen me as your representative because it's yeah, innately within but, me to fucking quit. But yeah, like, it's yeah, only a sliver. I, it's it's only a it's small only sliver. I would have liked to have seen more of it. You know. Yeah. Um, oh no, abs- absolutely. Or seeing him present um, a solution that doesn't rely on technology. Hmm. Or something like that, you know? Yeah. No, no, abs- yeah, no, it does. No, I, I get what you're going where you're going with it. Also it raises the question like that, like, so I think by the way that they did the, the timing, Bygone and Linfutu are the two most recent cultural representatives on the ship. And they're fully aware of their surroundings. But when they first meet Kirkuchi, Kirkuchi is actually, well, according to Tegan's translation, he's still speaking as if he's not not in the know as to what's going on. Mm. And I don't know whether that was for his benefit that, you know, oh the new arrivals don't know everything that's going on, so I'm going to speak to them like they're uneducated and use terms like the you know, the Great Wandering and Walkabout and things like that. Um, so yeah, I think I think there's like, there definitely is some untapped potential here. But again, it's like, I don't think you can stretch the story to six. So how do you fit it into a four-parker? Yeah, and like, you, know, you make the point of like, you know, Bygone doesn't speak Greek. <laughs> he speaks English. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I think Kukuchi's saying that like he won't walk about and he's on, I think that makes sense um, in the context of um, like Bygone describes it that the others fully bought into Monarch and so, you know, this is Kukuchi trying to play the game as presented to him by Monarch because if Kukuchi's the oldest, then maybe this is just how Monarch has made him behave to newbies coming in. That he's mm. meant to present himself as the um how about the the natural guy and stuff like that, like doing like mm. um but it is weird that the two newest people seem to have the most technological control. I, I don't know, it's it's, it's weird. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, weird. but look, let's talk it, about. Sorry, go on. No, it's like because like, the whole thing kind of raises some other questions that don't quite, in my head, don't quite jive with the overall plan. 
So I think we might actually get into it when we discuss Monarch, uh, especially Monarch, I suppose. Yeah, so let's go on to, to our villains. So we've got Persuasion, Enlightenment, and Monarch. I don't know about you. I don't have much to say about Persuasion and Enlightenment as separate beings, but I don't know about you and you're going first, so... No, like, it's like... I can kind of... Um, persuasion. He's just essentially the muscle of the group. Um, kind of like his name, Persuasion. And he he doesn't seem... The only kind of difference between himself and Enlightenment is that he doesn't really seem to have Monarch's ear the same way as Enlightenment mm. does. And then for Enlightenment herself, she just makes me uneasy for the whole fucking thing. It's like it's like a cat stalking you. I just like I'm on edge every time she appears on fucking screen thing. And it's like I feel like that she's meant to be the siren song that lures people in. And like she kind of reminds me of um you know Ebony Maw from like mm. uh, Avengers Infinity War and Endgame. She just kind of comes across like that character. Like the Oracle yeah. of of Monarch. Um, but outside of that, yeah, like there's no real fleshed out character between either of them, between Enlightenment and Persuasion. I agree with you. I think it's, I think Persuasion is the muscle that he is the heavy. Um but in a way that is so like it's so human. You know, it's so stereotypical. Hmm. Um, the way he carries himself, the way he sneers constantly and it's like yeah i get that you've been observing humanity for a long time but like i would have appreciated if the direction had included a bit more alienness to it you know mm-hmm. um yeah as for enlightenment she seems to i agree with you she seems like the monarch ear more um in both a good way and a bad way in the sense that like he you know she can say things to him that maybe he wouldn't accept from other people um, but I don't think the two of them actually have distinct characters as such. Um, no. And I think you know, for you could easily have removed one of them, and the story would have worked pretty much exactly the same. Yeah, because like the way they're built up, it's like almost like a. If you take a look at like the kind of stereotypical. Like you've seen V for Vendetta, you know, like the totalitarian government that's mm. there. It's like you're like oh, like your Mister Creevy, who's like the he's the head of like the re- Ministry of Reeducation for fucking offenders, and like you've got the the Minister of Media and all this type of stuff. It's like I I I it's like they're meant to fill these roles, but they have so little character you actually don't get an idea as to what they're like in those roles. Yeah, and actually, that's yeah. the one thing about. Enlightenment is that you do get the sense that like she, the sense we see it on screen, she is the hypnotic component. Yeah. Of everything. So I think the reason why Monarch probably trusts her more is because she is more of the softly, softly approach. Yeah. Which is the approach he wants to adopt. Mm-hmm. Persuasion is there when Enlightenment fails. Yeah. Do you know? Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, other than that, I think they're just there. <laughs> yeah, for the most no, part, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. So then we have Monarch, mm. and no, what I will say is Stratford's performance, Trout, is great. I think mm. despite his, he's despite his, you know, he felt his limitations with the 
the latex prosthetics and his inability to go to the jacks. I don't, although like he's sitting down for most of his performance, so why didn't they just put him into like a portable toilet? I don't know, but his like he worked well with the material that he was given. Hmm. I'm not going to fault. I don't think I can fault the performance in terms of the monarch though. He had my interest for a brief time when the plan was, I think I'm God. I'm going to go back in time and meet myself to confirm my suspicions. And that's mentioned twice. And for the rest of it, he's just a typical alien invader. And he becomes boring then to me. Yeah. And yeah, like his, like, I love his pompous nature. Like, it's great. And I liked how he's a, he's a good enough, um, con man that he's able to switch moods when addressing different members of the TARDIS crew because it did make some for some very interesting dynamics. Like mm. I don't think he, he I don't think he exhibits the same personality with any of them. Like with Adric mm. he's magnanimous. With Nissa it's like you're a fucking thorn on my side. I'm gonna make a copy of you that I can control. With the doctor it's like I feel like I could do you, but you're a bit too crazy. So how about I get to know you a bit more? And Tegan is nothing, essentially. Mm. He like or, or no, sorry, she's the she's the cattle that he's trying to lure into the slaughterhouse. That because yeah. that's all. Oh, that's all humanity is. Uh so I liked his, like I liked his ability to do that, but in terms of his portrayal of his overall plan. Two mentions of the, the interesting factor, and then it's just um, typically alien invader. Yeah, I think like the interesting thing about Monarch, you know, like the interesting part of his plan of he wants to be able to travel through time, is particularly to go back to before the Big Bang to verify that he himself is God. I maybe again, you know, you were maybe saying that maybe you misread one of the things, or maybe I was misreading this, but I thought that he wanted to go back. To make himself God. You know? Because um, they say that he wants to go back to meet himself. But I I don't know. The way I interpret it was, was that, like, if he can travel through time, that makes him as a as a God. So he, okay, will come, so he will go back in time to be that God. But I have the tr- I, ha- I have the transcript up here in front of me because I had to go back and check the Lin Fuchu thing. Mm-hmm. So it's... Um, the doctor says... So he believes that to fast travel faster than light would mean going backwards in time, back to the Big Bang. And Bygone says, and beyond. Monarch believes that he would meet himself there. He believes he is God. Yeah. yeah I don't know, I, even with that reading of it, even with that phrasing, I still read it as he believes he is God. And I don't think he means literally meet himself. I think doing that he meets himself that oh, he will become the then, man he's meant to be. Oh, that he'll meet his, he'll fulfill his, um, yeah. yeah. But then I think earlier on, like, um, Bygone says, like, you know, your quest to find the ultimate won't succeed because there is no ultimate. I know, I know that's a bit like more highfalutin language to cover mm. the fact of like what he is actually looking for. But um, it, it kind of reminds me of, um, scar off a small bit you know mm. the whole concept of being shot you're splintered across time but here it's like no that does sound kind of cool but like it's just it it's the focus is put off it so quickly 
that you, you almost forget that that's what his goal is. Yeah, and like I don't actually get his main plan. His main plan doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Um, but I I would agree with you. I think the performance is very good. It did have hmm. several hints or several um components that I think could have been later been used in 1984's Dune. Because I do get a sense of Baron Harkonnen from him from time to time. Yeah, yeah, I, I, can, I can see that. I can see that. Um, and actually, I was trying to remember what the Baron's name was from Dune. So it's like, you have like Dune 19 and a couple of 1984. And I was like, I had, I had in my head, like, did Dune come out before this? No, it didn't. Dune Is this, after. Isn't it Vladimir of House Harkonnen? Well, it's Baron. He's the Baron. He's Baron Harkonnen. That's, that's, I didn't look up his full name. Yeah, um, I'll check there now. It has been a long time since I've seen Dune. Yeah, I, I have it. and I, I, I have the book of it. And I started reading it last year, but I fell out of it. Not because it w- wasn't interesting. It's just because I think I got distracted by... I think I got distracted by Space Helmet for a co-volume too. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, it's Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. Um, yeah. Complete tangent, completely unrelated, but only because I've mentioned Doom. Um, Patrick Stewart was in Doom. Yep. I've just finished Patrick Stewart's biography. Patrick Stewart's experience yeah. on Doom was shit. I, I've heard like, that it was like it's. See, I've never seen the movie. I've seen clips of it, but like I've heard like that it's kind of like. Is it like a treated as a box office flop? A bit, but I, I don't mean that his experience on it was shit in the sense yeah, that yeah. filming was shit. The director yeah. made him feel so unwelcome and clearly did not want him. Oh. Because this is a complete tangent, but I was telling our friend Vic about this the other day. It's, again, additional tangent. Patrick Stewart's autobiography. Fucking brilliant. Highly recommend to everyone. And if you can get the audio version where Patrick actually reads it, fantastic. But um, he was called in to replace the person who had already been cast in that role and the reason why they called him in is because the director and I think it was the casting director or like one of the producers had seen him on stage at the RSC but when he turned up he met with the director who just stared at him blankly and for the entire filming did not talk to him directly never smiled at him never interacted well with him and he found out later as a reason why was because when they saw him in the RSC, I don't know if he was like in King Lear or something, but like he was long grey hair, pale skin, looking really gaunt and dishevelled mm. and whatever. And that's who they thought they were getting. Except Patrick had been filming a movie in Europe. So what they got was a healthy, you know, well tanned bald guy. And not a really gaunt, long, silver-haired gentleman. Right. And it's like, you could have made him the gaunt guy using makeup and a wig. But like, it, it's kind of strange, like, because his character in the newer version is portrayed by Josh Brolin. Big mm. fucking muscle granite-faced Josh Brolin, you know? So, yeah. like... I don't know, it, it, it's so yeah. weird. It sounds, it sounds like it was so horrendous. Like, it was the absolute worst filming experience ever. Um, 
again, highly recommend you read it. But coming back to this story to Monarch. Yeah. I think his plan is shit. I think the way this the, the the way the whole system is set up, I think doesn't make any sense. And I think he's lazy as hell. He he just sits on his ass and watches the video feeds as opposed to just containing the doctor and just fucking chopping himself up. Like, fuck off. Like these people are way more damaging to you than they're worth. Just move on. But no, instead he sits on his throne and, you know, watches on monitors. I'm like, oh my god, they're doing this. And it's not until the end when his two fucking lackeys are dead that he finally gets off his ass and goes to fucking do something about it and then ends up being miniaturized and left under a helmet for some reason. Mm. Um, so yeah, I... I agree with you that the concept of what he was apparently trying to do is interesting, but nothing he was doing seemed to actually be feeding into that concept. Like the the science behind yeah. the story is super fucking weird. Um, mm. Yeah, it's there's a whole lot in this like of the plan that just it really doesn't make sense. Yeah, and even the fact that like so he thinks he's God, but like he doesn't believe Rassilon exists. He isn't aware of hmm. what the fifth dimension is or like how like alternative ways that you can travel in time and whatever. I'm like I get there's delusions of grandeur, but there's delusions of grandeur and then there's just being a fucking moron. And hmm. he comes across as a very intelligent fucking moron. Yeah. That that's what he's just like it was like it's not like idiot savant, it's just oh. I don't know how you describe it, but yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. Okay, so we have done our usual, we have done story recap. Thank you very much. Trivia, thank me very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> Character discussion. Thank us very much. Thank us. <laughs> we are now on to our final component, which is our overall thoughts. So in this section, we give our thoughts on the story as a whole, and also give the story a score out of five. So, as usual, Paddington, you did socials, so you, sir, get to go first. Thank you kindly. Um, so, as I said, I thought that this was a good outing for Peter. Um, I did feel like that there, he had a natural kind of flair to it. Um, because just certain scenes they really, really appealed to me, and I just like it did come across like you know reminded me of Tom in like as bad as it was Revenge of the Cybermen, where he just seemed to be coasting through it, or even sorry, um, the Ark in Space, where he's just like kind of coasting through it. And it's like yeah, feels like this guy's been doing this for years. So yeah, there was parts of it where I, for with Peter, I was like going, he feels like a natural. That being said, I think him, Nissa, and Bygone are probably the best parts of this story. Because Monarch is very meh as a villain. Like we said, like, you know, his initial concept for what he's trying to do is amazing. But it's just com- almost completely forgotten about as soon as it's mentioned. Um, Adric and Tegan. Yeah, as, like Adric is just, he really fucking annoys me in this story. And Tegan, she becomes very damsel and distressy, and that kind of starts to grate on you after a while. And even though we said like the doctor, 
could have handled eat both of them better. There's still an awful lot about them that bugs me outside the doctor's interactions with them. Um, I like the idea of taking the cultural representative from different parts of Earth, but I find it kind of hard to believe that, like, as advanced as the Urbanka were, they would just go to a different continent each time, not scan the rest of the planet to see what advances had been made. Because he said they were first went 35,000 years ago, where, according to most records, like, there's very little advancement from certain societies. So when he, pick, like, when he picks up Kukuchi's people, and then he next he goes to Mel- and where like they presumably have nothing, and then he goes to pick up the Mayans where they have built fucking stone temples and all these other things without what it took a lot of European civilizations to build with the aid of the animals they had available. And then going to uh, Mandarin China and then Greece. Like, surely there was, like, why keep them all as these separate different groups? Would you not have tried to homogenize them a small bit so that when you do get back to Earth, at a much more advanced time frame, when they do land, they're not all going to look out of fucking place. Mm. That didn't make any. That didn't make any sense to me, especially now that you had Tegan's update. Like, oh, here's the fashion trends. It's like, cool. Why not start mass producing these for the new robots as opposed to just keeping them all in their um normal attire? Because presumably, you're also going to use them to help you shuttle all the stuff off. Like, so it just didn't really make any sense to me. Mm. So overall, I've given this a two out of five. Okay. Yeah, I did like I did like the the, the Chinese dragon dancing, the Mayan uh, dancing, and also the Aboriginal dancing. Mm. Yeah. So for me, I disagree with you on on Peter's acting in this one, but yeah. we can just disagree, mm-hmm. disagree on that. Um, yeah, I find the story really tough to get through. And I mean, there's a slightly personal reason for that, which I'm not going to go into the off or whatever. But, um, yeah, but also like I found that like I kept having to take breaks. I'd watch maybe oh, I watched episode one all the way through. That wasn't too bad. Like episode two onwards, I'd get through maybe like half the episode and I'd have to take a break and either read a fanfic or watch a YouTube video or do something else and then come back to it. And like this went on for days. Do you know what I mean? Which is very unlikely. Mm. Usually I just watch it in one sitting and I've watched all the way through. Um I don't know what it was. I I think part of it was the acting across the board wasn't great. The writing was just confusing. Like the whole monocle plan what happened to their people and how they do the miniaturization. Like, the whole thing just confused me. And I was just like, this mm. makes no fucking sense. And then you'd add up being an asshole and Tegan being fucking irritated as shit. And I'm just like, Nissa carried this entire story on her back. <laughs> like, really, like, massive kudos to Sarah Sutton because. Yeah. Sarah's acting was brilliant. Her line deliveries are on point across the board. I didn't think there was a dud delivery in the pack. Her her character was given great stuff to do. And you've the other fuckers just there. And then you've got like even like the the fucking like 
helmets that don't have a visor and aren't airlocked and just have a little popper thing that doesn't go in your mouth. It just shoots air at your mouth <laughs> in the hope that it doesn't evaporate or like disperse into the air before you have a chance to inhale it. Hmm. And apparently you can wear it into space without an enclosed space suit, which that whole space oh. walk scene was so shit. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, so actually, yeah. I'm sorry, like... That, that thing that really kind of fucking bugged me. It's like, how can he throw the cricket ball with enough force that it would fucking rebound and come back and push him back? That fucking made no sense to me. Yeah, so, to be honest, I was going to give this a 2.5. But the more we've talked about it, the more I realised that actually I really didn't like the story, like, at all. I was actually talking to my mom at breakfast this morning. She was asking, like, oh, are you ready for the podcast? And I was like, nearly I still had notes to finish <laughs> and I was just like because I was like I just don't like it <laughs> I think it was the perils of doing a podcast like we have to watch the story that's the fucking point and I was just mm. like I was like can this one just be over um so yeah I think I mean I don't want to give it less than a two because I think the concepts were interesting but there was just too many. Why the fuck did you do that? Why did you do that? Like, mm. even the whole fact that like this ship has been bouncing back and forth between Earth and the home planet five fucking times. Like, bitch, just fucking hang out by the moon and wait for time to pass. Why the fuck are you flying back and forth the whole time, you fucking moron? Just hang out by the moon. Time will pass. Mm. It'll be fine. Um, but yeah, so I'm also going to give it a two. I cannot bear to give it anything higher than that. And in fairness, I don't think it deserves anything lower. Um, I, yeah, I was like, it. the way you were talking, I was like, am I going to have to ask you which do you hate more, the gunfighters or this? Oh no, the, the gunfighters are still on its own level. This was just, <laughs> this was just the product. And maybe it's because it's been a couple of weeks, so we just take a couple of weeks off for different reasons. Yeah. Um, and maybe it's that, but like. Like, Castrovalva wasn't perfect, but, like, we went on Castrovalva to this. Like, come mm. on. Come on, like. All the characterization's gone. The performances have gotten to shit, in my opinion. And I'm just like, no, whatever. Can we just get back on track like we did with Castrovalva, please? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, not the best second outing in the world um no and to be honest i'm glad this was the second story and not the first story because if this was peter's first story like i said you and i disagree a little bit on the acting here but i don't think i would have been as invested in the fifth doctor or tegan if this had been for example if this had been the regeneration story I would not have bought into those characters at all if this was the first I've seen of them. So, um, yeah. Well done, Sarah Sutton. Um, for giving this story any semblance of a scroll of grammar. I just take a look there. And with the exception of Megloss, because of how much of a Jack, Jacqueline Hill fangirl you are, mm. uh, if you take Megalos out of the equation, you haven't scored higher than me since the Horns of Nyman. Uh, 
we've either been on par or I've scored higher than you. You scored higher than me on Megalos, but I'm putting that down to the fucking fact that Jacqueline was in it. So, yeah. yeah. And and the difference was like 0.25. Yeah. Which I can fully equate to Jacqueline 110%. Yeah, absolutely. So it'll be interesting to see. I just it was just kind of I was just kind of going at it like, when was the last time you scored something really higher than me? Yeah, it's been a yeah. while. It's been a while. Yeah. So, so we'll just have <laughs> we have to see if that trend continues. <laughs> mm. Um, and also just for our dedication and loyal listeners thank you so much as always uh we'll try and keep our schedule going back regular again as best as we can but obviously just with different things going on with work and civic commitments uh we'll <laughs> just try to be a bit more presence as well as to what's going on in terms of the schedule but thank you again for always listening and uh we hope to have you to continue listening to us especially now when we're i think we're off to uh not bad, but definitely we're off to kind of an okayish start with Peter. We've started. We'll, yeah. We'll go from there. Yes. So we shall go from there, and the next place we will go to is Kinda. Not kinda. Kinda. <laughs> Bye. Bye.